0: I'd like to welcome everybody to today's presentation on the biopsychosocial aspects of HPA axis dysfunction. Basically, we're going to be talking about how the HPA axis is intimately involved in mental health. I'm your host, Dr. Donnelly Snipes. We're going to define and explain the HPA axis because it is really fundamental in how our body balances and maintains the balance of Hormones and neurotransmitters, and we know when those hormones and neurotransmitters get out of whack, people start having not only emotional symptoms, but also behavioral and physiological symptoms that go along with a variety of different mental health issues. We'll identify the impact of trauma on the HPA axis. We're just going to touch on that briefly. Identify the impact of chronic stress on the HPA axis, symptoms of HPA axis dysfunction, and interventions that are useful for this population. Now, I've been doing a lot of classes lately, so I can't remember if I discussed the uh, water pressure analogy with you guys on Tuesday. I'm going to do it any again anyway. Um One of the things we want to think about when we are talking about neurotransmitters and mood is the fact that there are a lot of different places along the way that neurotransmitters can become unbalanced. Our body may not have the building blocks it needs to make enough. The factory that produces it, a lot of which is often in our gut, may not be up to speed and be able to produce enough. Even if we have enough, the area of our brain, the synapse or the um, the nerve that is supposed to secrete it into the synaptic space may not be functioning well. So, just like a clogged hose, it may not be able to secrete enough, or it may not get the signal. The neurotransmitters may not stay in the synaptic space for long enough to do their job. They may get absorbed too quickly, which is, that's where your serotonin and your other norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors kick in. They keep the uh, neurotransmitters in that synaptic space for longer. Okay. So if you're producing enough and it goes into the space and it stays there for long enough, then you may also have a problem down stream even more, where once it is absorbed or taken up by the other neuron, for some reason, the message isn't transmitted to the next neuron. So it kind of gets stuck at that junction. That being said, there are a lot of ways, reasons, places where there can be a breakdown in the system. And it's not just serotonin, it is all of our neurotransmitters and all of our hormones that are susceptible to this um, to these different places where we can have breakdowns in the system. When people present with mental health symptoms, mental illness symptoms, we want to recognize that we don't necessarily know what neurotransmitters are involved. Uh, depression, for example, depressive symptoms can be caused by... Uh, Inadequate dopamine, inadequate norepinephrine, inadequate serotonin, inadequate GABA, uh, too much glutamate. There are a lot of different permutations that can cause the imbalance because all of our neurotransmitters have to stay in this... Perfect balance for us, whatever that looks like. And and so we want to recognize that anything that upsets that system or upsets the balance of those neurotransmitters likely is going to produce mood symptoms. When we have a problem at our house with the plumbing, you know, and we've had this occasionally, so it's an example that I think most people can relate to. You go to take a shower and all of a sudden there is very little water pressure and you're like, what's the deal? I'm not getting enough water pressure. Well, there could be a clog in your um, uh, shower head because of too much calcium buildup there could be a clog somewhere along your line there could be a break in the line because a tree root went into it or it just cracked you don't know Um, or the city could have cut down your water pressure so let's just say for argument's sake that you really want to take a shower so you go out to the road and you open the little box and you turn up the water pressure for the water going to your house. That's kind of akin to what we do when we take, um, antidepressants or when people take antidepressants. They're basically increasing the amount of serotonin, for example, that is being, um, pushed into that synaptic space for lack of a better example. You know, serotonin keeps it, or SSRIs keep it there for longer, but, um, uh, Essentially, what we're doing is putting a Band-Aid on the problem. We still haven't gone back and said, okay, well, why is the water pressure, did it suddenly drop? Why did somebody's serotonin levels suddenly, or not so suddenly, drop, or their norepinephrine levels? What caused this? We, we've got to remember that our emotions, our feelings, our behaviors, our urges are all reactions to to changes in neurochemical balances it's not just something that kind of comes out of thin air that being said let's start talking about the hp axis axes um, one article that is really good, if you want to explore in depth, and this one does take some time to read, it's not it's not easy reading, but it is a fascinating article, it's called Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder, the Neurobiological Impact of Psychological Trauma. And that article goes super in depth into a lot of the things that we're going to talk about today. And then lifestyle factors contributing to the HPA axis activation and chronic illness in Americans is written on a much lighter level. Um, And it points out some of the things, some of the lifestyle factors that people are engaging in that are causing that, that can be causing that HPA axis dysfunction and therefore an imbalance in their neurotransmitters. We have three main HP axes. Your hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, which is mainly what we're going to talk about today, is the one that is responsible for our fight or flight behaviors. However, the HPA axis, the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, is connected to the hypothalamic pituitary thyroid axis and the hypothalamic pituitary gonadal axis. So your thyroid hormones, your adrenal hormones, and your your thyroid, adrenal, and your gonadal hormones are all regulated in large part by the hypothalamus and the pituitary gland. Really important to recognize that if there is a dysfunction in one of those areas for some reason or, you know, other areas of our body, you know, it can contribute to problems. So if there's a problem with the hypothalamus, then that's going to affect the adrenals, the gonads, and the um, thyroid. Same thing if there's a problem with the pituitary gland. Um, But anyhow, your hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis controls reactions to stress and regulates digestion, the immune system including inflammation, mood, emotions, sexuality, when it communicates with that HPG axis, and energy storage and expenditure, when it communicates with the HPT axis. The signs and symptoms of HPA axis dysfunction reflect a persistent adaptation to the neurobiological sy- systems of uh, to chronic stress. So when somebody is under chronic stress, the system adjusts in order to protect the individual, in order to help us survive, which is why I crossed out the word abnormal. Because yes, it is not the healthy state of being, but it is actually a very functional adaptation because the tissues and the, and the, the nerves become less sensitive for example, uh, they become, um, they, they start to ignore cortisol. So they become, um, tolerant, if you will, to cortisol and it, or resistant to the effects of cortisol after a while, because the body's saying, I just can't be this stressed all the time. I just, I just can't do it. I don't have the energy. I need to devote energy to getting some of those free radicals out and doing some other stuff. I can't be this revved up all of the time, which is why when people are exposed to chronic stress, um, and that can include chronic chronic stress that comes from PTSD as a result of trauma, uh, they tend to start to develop symptoms not only of hypervigilance and may, some, some anxiety, which are common to PTSD, but also symptoms of depression because they are starting to feel... Um, Uh, flat. Their body is not responding to the fight or flee. Their body is not even responding to the normal fluctuations of cortisol, where in the morning our cortisol is supposed to peak and it's supposed to decrease throughout the day. In people who have chronic stress, a lot of times they have difficulty um, waking up, getting excited because they their body has become resistant to the effects of that cortisol. In addition to trauma, multiple lifestyle factors have been associated with HPA axis dysregulation, including noise. I mean, obviously things that we want to hear, pretty sounds, aren't going to cause that dysregulation. What we're talking about is what I would call toxic noise. And it can be low-grade, constant noise like that that comes from um wind turbines, or it can be uh, infrequent or intermittent noise like that that comes from uh, sirens or a plane flying overhead if you happen to be, unfortunately, in the flight pl- path for your airport. Uh, stimulant use, including caffeine, nicotine, and medications like ADHD medications, uh, can over time, uh, cause the HPA axis to become dysfunctional. If somebody tells you, I can drink caffeine now and go right to sleep, or worse yet, caffeine makes me sleepy. That tells me that their HPA axis is in really bad shape because their body is no longer responding to the stimulant effects the way it's supposed to. And so that indicates some uh, glucocorticoid resistance or some resistance to that cortisol. Insufficient quality sleep is also another lifestyle factor that contributes to HPA axis activation. When we're tired... We wake up and our body says, hey, you know, if you're sluggish, you are not on guard. You are, you are more vulnerable when you are tired, when you are sluggish. So I'm going to ramp up that HPA axis a little to give you a little jolt of glutamate and cortisol so you can get going with your day. Additionally, when we're tired, when we have insufficient sleep, what do we tend to do? We tend to drink caffeine and copious amounts of it. So we are act artificially activating that HPA axis. And when we're, you know, manually turning that up and trying to get it to secrete more cortisol and glutamate so we can be awake, it is, um, it can be very challenging on the body. Now, every once in a while, probably not going to be a big deal, but when you're drinking, we'll take coffee, for example. I know people who drink one or two pots of coffee a day, and that is really, really hard on their HPA axis. And then media exposure, whether it is print news, um, internet news, television news, and even some, you know, media, like television shows that we watch, whatever you're watching, any kind of media exposure that causes stress can also trigger the HPA axis. Unfortunately, we live in a world now, and it's kind of been that way since well, for the last 20 or so years, that the media is ever-present 24-7, and it feels like there is constantly something traumatic happening. And I encourage you, as a little experiment, one day or one week, you know, watch the news for an hour and make little hash marks, you know, every story that you That they tell you about that is negative distressing or makes you feel unsafe and every story that they tell you about that it is either neutral you know you don't care one way or another or makes you happy and see at the end of watching the news how much stress or how many stressful triggers you've experienced, I think you will find it's rather disheartening. Consequences of HPA axis dysfunction. More than 50% of Americans suffer from one or more chronic conditions associated with stress, i.e. disturbances of the HPA axis. Remember, HPA axis is our stress response system. When we're under too much stress, that axis becomes disturbed. This costs the... American people, more than $3.3 trillion annually. Um, About 20% of people have major depressive disorder, 18% generalized anxiety. About 25% of people have sex hormone imbalances, low testosterone or other hormone imbalances. And many of those can be traced to stress. Some of them, You know, granted, some of them are traced to aging. Remember, as we age, you know, our testosterone levels go down, estrogen levels go down. There are all kinds of changes in our physiology as we age, which can contribute to some mood symptoms. But we also need to recognize that when the HPA axis is activated, it alters the balance of our sex hormones because our body says, hey this is stressful, this is scary, this is a threatening period, not time to reproduce. 9.2% of people have diabetes, and that's on the low end. They estimate that there's another 10 to 20% of people who have undiagnosed or pre-diabetes. They have determined in recent years that both type 1 and type 2 diabetes have autoimmune components to them. And we know that autoimmune disorders, which is the next one, um, are associated with inflammation and HPA axis dysfunction. As autoimmune, when autoimmune disorders are triggered, let's just say that autoimmune disorders happens first. You've got Crohn's disease, you eat gluten, um, your stomach becomes inflamed. Well, that is a stressor on the body. Anything that causes pain or inflammation is going to uh, trigger that HPA axis. Likewise, when the HPA axis is chronically triggered, Because of chronic stress, it actually promotes inflammation throughout the body, including worsening autoimmune issues. So they kind of both hurt each other, if you want to think about it that way. Chronic pain is another issue, and it may be associated with autoimmune issues, and it may be associated with other things. There's lots of stuff that cause chronic pain. That can include migraines. It can include scoliosis. Obviously, scoliosis is not a um, stress-related illness. However, chronic pain causes stress, and stress can impact the HPA axis. When the HPA axis is activated and becomes dysfunctional, our pain threshold, our pain tolerance goes down because it's a, the HPA axis, when it is active and dysfunctional, starts suppressing serotonin and starts suppressing some of those other things that normally would regulate pain. Now that's when it's dysfunctional. Metabolic syndrome, which is characterized by generally having a lot of uh, weight around your belly, um, having high cholesterol, diabetes, 30% of people. Cardiovascular disease is associated with stress and HPA axis dysfunction. That impacts a whopping 44% of the population. Let that sink in for a second hypothyroid 4.6 and irritable bowel syndromes like constipation and diarrhea diarrhea and reduced tolerance to physical and mental stress all of these things can be a consequence of hpa axis dysfunction and all of these can contribute to hpa axis dysfunction or maintaining hpa axis dysfunction When people are striving for recovery, when they're striving to improve their health and mental health, it's important for them to recognize that the body and the brain or the physical health and mental health, however you want to put it, you can't separate the two. If people are having stressful thoughts, it's going to trigger the HPA axis. If people are experiencing physical pain, it's going to trigger the HPA axis, which is going to alter the neurochemicals, which is going to trigger emotions. So we need to understand that the two of them need to be in harmony. When exposed to a physical, environmental, or social stressor, the HPA axis is activated and prompts the fight or flight reaction. Glutamate, our main excitatory neurotransmitter, and norepinephrine and adrenaline, uh, or norepinephrine is also known as noradrenaline, and regular old adrenaline are released. The hypothalamus releases corticotropin release, releasing factor and arginine vasopressin to stimulate the anterior, in, uh, anterior pituitary to produce and secrete adrenocortico, cor, adrenocorticotropic Hormone. Now, you don't need to know all of this, but some people are really interested in the actual like pathway. So that's why I'm I'm going through this. After this happens, your thyroid hormones are activated to manage metabolism and energy. That's that HPT axis again. So it reaches out and taps that axis. And then it reaches over and taps that HPG axis uh, in order to rebalance the gonadal hormones to support, fight, or flee. ACTH causes glucocorticoid synthesis, causes your body to make cortisol and release it from the adrenal glands. Cortisol's primary function is to increase blood glucose and modify fat and protein metabolism to fuel the fight or flight reaction. Um, Now, in the morning when it wakes us up, obviously we hope we don't wake up with a fight or flight reaction, but again, in the morning uh, when our cortisol levels are theoretically at their highest, the whole reason for that is to give us a a little shot of energy from our blood glucose and prepare us to have the energy for the day. Cortisol also modulates the immune system and brain function to effectively manage stressors. When the system's working, Cortisol initially causes a potent anti-inflammatory response, and it actually causes the release of endorphins initially in order to, um, so you don't feel pain and so you don't have inflammation when you're fighting that tiger during the initial fight or flee reaction. We want to be able to survive, so when the, when the HPA, the HPA axis is functioning normally, you know, cortisol comes in, reduce inflammation, um, reduce our perception of pain. uh, So we we are able to fight through it. When our tissues become resistant to cortisol, then it doesn't have the anti-inflammatory effect and the uh, endorphins are not triggered to be released. So the person starts feeling more pain, starts having more inflammation. Interestingly, Glucocorticoids like cortisol, when the body is not resistant to them, interfere with the retrieval of traumatic memories. So when we are in this extreme state of fight or flee, when we have high levels of glutamate and cortisol coursing through our body... It actually interferes with our body's ability to synthesize those memories. And and that's a really cool survival mechanism. It really ticks people off when they're trying to, you know, come to terms with the trauma they've had and they can't remember all the details. But if we can help them understand that it's partly a physiological blessing in some ways, that this happens. It's not that you're just intentionally forgetting. Your brain may not have processed that information. As cues of the threat wane, the body increases inflammation by releasing pro-inflammatory cytokines to accelerate wound healing. So as the threat wanes, cortisol levels drop. And, you know, we we start feeling the rest and digest. You have, you know, serotonin starts to rise again. There's a release of pl- pro-inflammatory cytokines to scour, to figure out what needs to be replaced and repaired. That's awesome. That's only when the system works well, though. When you're under chronic stress, the cues of the threat never wane. So eventually, the tissues become resistant to the cortisol and the inflammatory cytokines just start pumping out. The response of an individual to stress depends not only on the stressor characteristics, you know, what's going on, but also unique individual factors. What's stressful for me as a 50-year-old woman may not be stressful to, you know, somebody else, or maybe uh, what's not stressful to me may be really stressful to a 16-year-old. You know, what stresses my daughter out just doesn't even hardly face me anymore. Um, Not not that her stress doesn't, but you know, the things that stress out a 16-year-old, by the time you're 50, it's just like another day in the park. So what do we want to look at? We want to recognize that stressor responses are somewhat dependent on the perception of the stressor. How close it was to our safe zones. Something that happens in our neighborhood or in our city is likely going to be more threatening than something that happens halfway across the world. Our similarity to the victim. If we are not the primary victim, um, if we are, then obviously we're very similar to the victim. But if we're not the primary victim, if we are similar, if something happens to a neighbor of ours, and we feel like we are similar to that person, then it may be more traumatic to us than if it's somebody who is very different from us on a lot of different dimensions, Um, because then we can create an us-them sort of paradigm to make ourselves feel safer. And the degree of helplessness. When someone feels like they are empowered in a situation, um, that there are things they can do to keep themselves safe, then it's less, maybe less impactful um, and maybe less likely to cause long-term traumatic stress than for people who feel completely helpless to change the situation. Prior traumatic experiences often mean that a person already has some level of HPA axis dysfunction, but a current trauma can trigger prior traumas, and it can have an exponential effect that really sends that HPA axis into the stratosphere. The amount of stress in the preceding months, current mental health or addiction issues, and the availability of social support all also are factors that determine How, um, overworked, if you will, the HPA axis is. If the HPA axis is already overworked or starting to experience dysfunction because the person's been, you know, pumping that cortisol like crazy, then they are probably going to have a more extreme uh, stress response to any current stressor. Compared to positive events, negative events or stress Cause a greater awareness and recall of event details, leading to stronger encoding of negative or stressful events. Well, that makes sense. If we miss the cute little bunny hopping down the street, you know, that's probably not going to be any threat to our safety. You know, it would have been nice to see it, but it's not a threat. If we, me- if we miss the poisonous snake that is slith- slithering across the path and we step on it, then that could kill us. So we tend to provide more, what they call emotional valence to negative uh, stimuli. We are more alert to it and we give it more weight. The NEVER, negative emotional valence enhances recapitulation. How about that for a a title? Uh, The NEVER model of emotional valence asserts that the greater number of stimuli related to the unpleasant event that are remembered the greater the likelihood that the person will encounter reminders of the event leading to increased recapitulation. So I said, when there's cortisol going through the brain, a lot of times we have difficulty uh, remembering all of the details, but it makes sense. The more details you remember, the more likely you're going to encounter things that remind you of the trauma in the future. So... And, and the more times that you're triggered by it, the more things that remind you, the more times you're going to be thinking about it or recapitulating it. Um, and, and that's important for people to recognize that uh, sometimes memories can be a blessing and sometimes they can be a curse. Recapitulation, uh, that, that is re- frequently remembering and, and bringing that, that trauma back into memory, initially leads to repeated HPA axis activation. But over time, the continued stress prolongs the inflammatory response via continued activation of the HPA axis, leading to glucocorticoid resistance, causing cells to become less sensitive to cortisol to protect them from the persistent secretion. So when people who have experienced PTSD or traumas... get to the point of PTSD, one of the things that we've often seen is a level of glucocorticoid resistance because they are frequently having those flashbacks, those intrusive memories, the recapitulation, and their HPA axis um, is just like constantly firing and their tissues are starting to become less resistant or, or or less sensitive to the cortisol. Low cortisol levels, glucocorticoid resistance, whatever you want to call it, at the time of exposure to trauma may predict the development of PTSD. Again, when somebody is in a state where their HPA axis is already dysfunctional, where their um, body is already resistant to the effects of cortisol, they enter this state that I call flat. You know, nothing really makes them happy. Nothing really makes them sad until there's something big. And then when that big thing happens, they go like off the charts. So I call it flat to furious. Um, and, and it's important to kind of see that in people. When people start having um, emotional dysregulation and behavioral disinhibition, we want to look and see, is there an element of... Uh, glucocorticoid resistance that may be contributing to that. Because of hypocortisolism, be, when our body becomes resistant to the effects of the cortisol, uh, sustained HPA axis activation causes persistently high levels of CRH, which causes blunting of the ACTH response or to CRH stimulation, um, Disinhibition of CRH and norepinephrine lead to an exaggerated response to acute stressors and a corresponding increase in cortisol. So the body says, you know what? I, I just can't deal. I just can't deal. So it's flat. And then when there is a something that happens... Instead of being able to pump out, you know, a gallon, and that's obviously not the right amount, um, a gallon of cortisol to get the body to do what it needs to do, since the, the nerves are resistant now, it has to pump out three gallons. So all of a sudden, there is just this flood of norepinephrine and cortisol into the system, uh, which is why we go from flat to furious, Exposure to additional stressors produces stronger trauma related symptoms, in part due to the exaggerated HPA axis response, causing the stressor to have a stronger negative emotional valence. So they're flat, then they experience this new trauma. They have an exaggerated reaction, so they are reacting to it at the level of a 15 when it might only be a level of a 2 but it is more intensely awful to them, which means it is more strongly negative and more strongly encoded negatively. Exaggerated elevation of cortisol during exposure to acute stressors increases the sensitivity of NMDA glutamate receptors, which makes the brain generally more vulnerable to the excitotoxic effects of stress. And that's something we haven't talked about yet. Glutamate is one of our main excitatory neurotransmitters, um, and it's number one next to acetylcholine. And when we have a lot of glutamate going through our brain, you know, initially, if there's a threat, it does its job. It helps us stay awake. It helps us, you know, really have energy to do what we need to do. That's great. But when it is up there for too long, it actually starts killing neurons and, and it doesn't really actually get too hot, but you can think about it that way. It, it's gets too hot because it's, um, the body is trying to fight or flee so much. It's so energized that we actually start losing neurons and the structure of the brain changes. And remember at the beginning, I said, when we start having any sort of dysfunction in the hypothalamus or the pituitary, it's going to likely negatively impact the HPA axis, HPT, and HPG axes. The volume of the hippocampus, which controls not only the HPA axis and stress response, but also declarative memory, is reduced in the excitotoxic environment. The amygdala increases and promotes hypervigilance and impairs threat discrimination. So that's important to recognize. The hippocampus shrinks, but the amygdala grows. Reduced free pr- prefrontal cortex volume impairs executive functioning and impulse control. If you remember, uh, our brain does not finish developing until we are 24 to 26, depending on which article you read. The last thing to develop is the prefrontal cortex. When our brain is developing, it is like a vase, a clay vase, that you have gone to great pains to make into something beautiful, but it's not been fired in in the kiln yet. So it is very susceptible to damage. Uh, Much more susceptible than a vase once it's been put into the kiln. So when... Youth, and I use that term to re- refer to anybody under the age of 26, uh, when youth are exposed to trauma and those glutamate levels go up, the prefrontal cortex is extremely susceptible because it is still developing. So it is extremely, deve- extremely susceptible to damage from the, that high level of glutamate in the brain. Reduced an- anterior cingulate volume. Impairs the extinction of fear responses. Well, this makes sense. If you think of it from a survival standpoint, that the amygdala, which does our fear processing and the anterior cingulate, which, um, helps impair the extinct, or which, which helps extinguish fear responses, you know, those are altered in order to make us more hypervigilant. So we can theoretically be safer. From a very primitive standpoint, it makes survival sense. Additionally, when that those cortisol levels are out of whack, the thyroid hormones become imbalanced because cortisol inhibits the conversion of T4 to T3, which leads to an abnormal T3 and T4 ratio and increases anxiety. So just to briefly recap, low levels of cortisol or low responsiveness to cortisol, can alter the physiology. It contributes to feelings of exhaustion. It contributes to difficulty concentrating. It contributes to a lot of our depressive symptoms. Additionally, alterations in the T3, T4 ratio can increase anxiety. So you may have somebody who feels flat, who feels anxious, who feels depressed, all at the same time. GABA. Activity is decreased and glutamate activity is increased when the HPA axis is dysregulated. Which, again, makes sense. If our body thinks there's a lot of threats out there, you know, we want it to be alert. We don't want the soldier to be sleeping in the foxhole. Uh, So GABA is, you know, decreased. GABA has profound anxiolytic effects, in part by inhibiting the CRH norepinephrine circuits. So GABA sort of tamps down norepinephrine so people can relax. We love our GABA. We really want our GABA so we can rest, so we can rejuvenate, so we can sleep, Patients with PTSD uh, exhibit decreased peripheral benzodiazepine binding sites. So people with PTSD, not only do they not have as much GABA activity, but they don't have as many receptors peripherally. So they believe that because of the reduction of GABA activity, the brain actually starts paring back some of those uh, benzodiazepine receptors because it doesn't believe they're necessary anymore. Because GABA activity is decreased and glutamate is increased, which is going to lead to higher le- levels of anxiety and irritability, We may this may indicate the usefulness of emotion regulation and distress tolerance skills. These skills can help reduce excitotoxicity and and reduce distress and improve stress tolerance so the person can acquire new skills. We really need to help them get back to basics. Um, Remember, if you go to the ABCs, the activating event, then we go down to the consequences and we have distress or emotional dysregulation. And in that split second, there were all those automatic beliefs. Well, what we're needing to do is helping is to help people go from that activating event to being able to better regulate or tolerate the distress of the consequence uh, so they can step back and get into their wise mind and address the situation, evaluate the beliefs so they can uh, downregulate their HPA axis activation. We want to help them get back in control, feel like they have some level of um, empowerment over their HPA axis. When people have hypocortisolism, there's also increased uh, dopamine and norepinephrine levels, which increase arousal, startle response, fear memory encoding, and increased HPA axis activation in response to recapitulation. Now, remember, dopamine is our, I need to do that again neurochemical. It's not so much our pleasure chemical. Dopamine, um, when we do something pleasurable, tells is released and says, ooh, let's do that again. But a lot of times that's because we had an endorphin rush. Um, dopamine helps us persevere and, and keeps us motivated and moving forward. Changes to the ratios of estrogen, testosterone, and progesterone occur, which impact the body's ability to modulate cortisol levels. Prolonged psychological stress suppresses estrogen, causing amenorrhea, which has profound effects on cardiac, skeletal, psychological, and reproductive systems. The same thing is true with testosterone in, in men. Additionally, serotonin levels are simultaneously decreased in parts of the brain, which disrupt communication between the amygdala, our fear processing, and the hippocampus, which lead to increased vigilance, startle, impulsivity, memory intrusions, hostility, aggression, depression, and suicidality. So when that system, when the HPA axis is dysfunctioning, it also negatively impacts the functioning of the serotonin system, which can contribute to a whole host of symptoms that we associate with anxiety, depression, and PTSD. You don't need to know all of these. You can go one of the... F- Wikipedia is not always super reliable, but this chart is very reliable um, and it helps you identify or helps you understand the fact that there are multiple types of serotonin. Uh, 5-HT is your serotonin, and we talked on t- Tuesday about uh, mucosal 5-HT in our gut, and it's n- necessary for gut health and to prevent leaky gut. Well, you have 5-HT different receptors: A, B, uh, 2, 1 you know, five, all kinds of different ones. The take home from this slide, look at everything that serotonin is involved in. And it's actually a shorter list to try to identify what it's not involved in. I mean, everything from addiction to aggression, anxiety, blood pressure, cognition, memory, GI motility, sexual behavior. I mean, it does everything. So if the serotonin system is being altered um because the hpa axis is dysfunctional then you may start having a lot of not only emotional but also behavioral and physiological symptoms To help people benefit as much as possible from treatment, we need to help them reduce the assaults on their HPA axis. Our body really does want to gravitate toward homeostasis. It wants to repair itself. But to do that, we've actually got to let it have time to rest and digest where it's not constantly being, you know, bombarded by cortisol and glutamate. We need to give them instruction and skills to handle emotional dysregulation. This can include mindfulness. Mindfulness is great because not only can it be used when they are upset, but if people start practicing and learning to be mindful pretty consistently, then they can start noticing the symptoms or the beginnings or inklings, whatever you want to call it, of distress before they are in a full-out crisis, they can start to notice, hey, I'm feeling a little bit off today, or I'm feeling a little bit anxious, or whatever it is, so they can take steps. Prevention, What? It, what is it that they say, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, Well, the earlier they can intervene, they are going to prevent a whole host of other problems that happen when those symptoms get worse. Mindfulness can be huge. When people are mindful, they also start becoming a lot more aware of the triggers in their environment that they may not have paid attention to before so they can address them. They become more aware of the things that they do have power over so they can be more effective at creating an environment in which they feel safe and empowered. We need to help them identify their vulnerabilities and take steps for vulnerability prevention and awareness. And when I talk about vulnerabilities, I really mean anything that would predispose a person to reacting in an excessive fashion to overreacting to a situation. And I've shared with you guys before, sleep is mine. When I am sleep deprived, I tend to be um, much more emotional than when I have good sleep. So I know if I've been sleep deprived because for whatever reason, then the next day that I'm going to need to take particular steps to prevent unnecessary emotional distress, I'm going to need to, you know, be be kind to myself the next day. For some people, it may be chronic pain. If they've got rheumatoid arthritis and it's flaring up, that may mean that they are going to, that day, tend to be a little bit crankier because they're in pain. Okay. It is what it is. But if you know that, then you can take steps to prevent additional unnecessary distress. We want to teach emotion regulation skills. So, people, can, when they start to experience emotion dysregulation, they have skills and tools that they can use, like cognitive behavioral tools, to re regulate their emotions. But before they can do that, they need to be able to get into their wise mind, which is where distress tolerance comes in. So this goes back to those ACT, acceptance and commitment therapy, and DBT, dialectical behavior therapy, skills and tools that are out there. I find that those are some of the most helpful for regulating the HPA axis in addition to basic health behaviors like getting enough sleep and eating a nutritious diet. Of those exposed to trauma, education about normalization of heightened emotional reactivity and susceptibility to PTSD in the future may be helpful. So we want to normalize their reactions so they don't feel like they're, you know, strange or broken in some way. We want to help them understand how their reactions, how their symptoms make sense, what their symptoms are designed to do, and generally that is to protect them. And then empower them to take steps to the best of their ability to address those issues so they can feel safe. According to the social signal transduction theory of depression, perception of social threat by exposure to social, symbolic, or imagined threats and, adverse and adversity upregulate the HPA axis. Modern media recast social, cultural, and political events and highlight our current vulnerabilities to terrorism and dystopia 24 hours a day. And it's important to recognize the impact that has on our HPA axis. Chronic HPA axis activation can trigger depressed mood, anhedonia, fatigue, psychomotor retardation, and behavioral withdrawal, all of those symptoms of depression. Exposure to predominantly negative stories in the news results in increased negative emotional responses and increasing HPA axis activation. These messages are of increased concern regarding the youth who, depending on their developmental level, may not be able to discern something that is being recast from something that's still occurring, setting the stage for increased generalized anxiety. Remember, for those of you who are old enough to remember, when the... Twin Towers were hit on 9-11. They replayed that over and over and over again, and I remember my son was um, very little at the time, but it felt even to me like it was going on over and over again, and I remember him asking me whether... You know, that was another tower that had been hit. And I was like, no, it's the same one. They're just showing it to us over and over again. But for kids, they also have a difficult time differentiating what is happening in my corner of the world versus what's happening, you know, on the other side of the world. So they may feel unsafe when they see something, even if it's happening over in Syria, they may not recognize that how far away that is. So we do need to be aware that things that may not stress us out when we see them on the media, because we know that we are, you know, 6,000 miles from it, may still be stressful to children uh, for a variety of reasons. One being their safety and the other, there's just some things that, you know, children can be very empathetic once they get to a certain age. And, you know, it may be very heart-wrenching for them to see some of this stuff. In 2016, 98% of young adults used approximately 7.6 different social media regularly. Individuals who spent more than 120 minutes on social media per day or who visited social media sites more than nine times per day had significantly increased odds of depression. Increased time online is associated with a decline in communication with family members, reduction in the internet user's social circle, reduction in sleep, increased feelings of depression and loneliness, and a strong positive correlation between social media usage and perceptions of isolation. This is another one of those lifestyle factors. If they're going to use social media, how can they use it in a way in a way that enhances their life as opposed to inhibiting the important aspects of their life. According to the CDC, one in 3 adults does not get enough sleep. There are many causes of sleep deprivation. But sleep disruption or deprivation can impair um the body and lead to hyperactivation of the HPA axis and circadian rhythm disruption. This results in significant increases in the short term of plasma cortisol levels. The body's trying to adjust and help you stay awake when you're supposed to be awake. Reduction in serotonin and melatonin, which makes it even harder to get to sleep that night, and increases in norepinephrine. Remember, norepinephrine gives us energy. It is also involved in helping us have, um, address depression. So for some people, um, lack of norepinephrine can contribute to depression increases or excessive norepinephrine can contribute to anxiety. A recent study of the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey found inadequate intake of vitamin A, calcium, selenium, carbohydrates, vitamin D, and lycopene to be associated with poor sleep. So remember, we need melatonin. We need certain hormones, not only a good circadian rhythm, but certain hormones and neurotransmitters in order to get quality sleep. Low levels of zinc and magnesium are also implicated in the development of depression Through overactivity of the HPA axis, we need zinc and magnesium to help make serotonin and help make some of our calming chemicals. A significant negative correlation was found between sleep quality and low quality carbohydrate intake from processed foods. So um, sleep quality went up as low-quality carbohydrate intake went down. So those really highly processed junk foods um, tend to actually have a negative effect on our sleep. Skipping breakfast and eating irregularly were also strongly associated with hypoglycemia, which is another thing that can cause chronic HPA axis activation and poor sleep quality. Lack of access to natural light, shift work, and overnight work prohibits the body from receiving cues from the environment that regulates our circadian rhythm. Insomnia at night for a lot of people then contributes to frustration. You know, you're laying there in bed going, oh my gosh, I can't sleep. And daytime drowsiness causes people to overuse stimulants, contributing to even more HPA axis H-P-A activation and dysfunction. Blue light from digital devices and televisions can impair people's ability to get to sleep and get good quality sleep, especially if they leave their television on all night long. And 26% of adults have sleep apnea, which is associated with HPA axis activation. Not only does it impair your sleep, which activates the HPA axis, but when the person stops breathing has those apnea episodes, that also activates the HPA axis. Additionally, nighttime noise causes frequent awakening, less deep sleep, increased subjective disturbance, and is correlated with an increased risk of HPA axis activation, cardiovascular disease, depression, and anxiety. Now remember that HPA axis activation itself is associated with cardiovascular disease, depression, and anxiety. So the take home from this is inc- encouraging people to get that natural light, to help regulate their circadian rhythms, to minimize blue light within two hours of bed, and to address sleep apnea and nighttime noises in order to improve sleep. 20% of Americans are heavy drinkers, within the, and probably more than that now that we've gone through COVID. Unfortunately, we've seen the numbers going way up. Within the USA, it's estimated that societal costs of alcohol-related sleep disorders exceeds $18 billion. Alcohol decreases the time it takes to fall asleep, which some people swear by, unfortunately, um, and it increases the quality and quantity of non-REM sleep during the first half of the night. But once the alcohol starts leaving the body, it severely disrupts the sleep quality during the second half of the night. Alcohol itself stimulates the HPA axis, and repeated alcohol exposure leads to that uh, hypocortisolism, or the blunted HPA axis response, which is associated with depressive symptoms, such as anhedonia, fatigue, behavioral withdrawal, and widespread systemic inflammation. Recent nicotine use and lower dependence is associated with increased activation of the HPA axis. But as dependence on nicotine goes up, the response of the HPA axis decreases, which makes sense. They're developing glucocorticoid resistance. And there is a significant reciprocal relationship between smoking and sleep disturbances. So as smoking goes up, sleep disturbances also tend to go up. Caffeine is found not only in coffee, but also soda, chocolate, over-the-counter migraine medications, decongestants, and some diet and workout supplements. So we want to make sure people know where they're getting their caffeine from. When it was paired with a mental or physical stressor, cortisol and adrenaline levels exceeded levels seen when the caffeine or stressors were encountered independently. So it basically turbocharges the HPA axis response to stress. A healthy gut microbiome has over a 1,000 species of bacteria and can decrease depression, anxiety, regulate sleep, appetite, and improve cognition. An unhealthy gut microbiome contributes to an exaggerated HPA axis response. A healthy diet will make sure that people have sufficient levels of tryptophan, iron, magnesium, B6, folic acid, vitamin C, and zinc. Exercise has been shown to moderate both inflammatory cytokines and oxidative stress. And low intensity exercise at 40 to 50% of a person's VO2 max has actually been shown to reduce cortisol levels. For me, that would be 98 beats a minute. So it's really just a gentle walk. It's not anything that excessive. So encouraging people at the end of the day to do some really low-intensity exercise can help reduce cortisol and help prepare them for sleep. Some level of activation of the HPA axis is necessary for motivation and energy. When it's activated in response to stress, it impacts the balance of dopamine, serotonin, norepinephrine, GABA, glutamate, and thyroid hormones. It modulates the release of inflammatory cytokines and estrogen and testosterone and impacts insulin sensitivity and balance. Sustained activation results in brain changes which alter hormones and neurotransmitter balances, which unfortunately causes further HPA axis activation. Pre-existing issues causing hypocortisolism set the stage for the flat and the furious, which leads to toxic levels of glutamate upon exposure to stressors, increased negative stimuli encoding, and enhanced recapitulation. This points to the importance of prevention and early intervention of adverse childhood experiences, as well as chronic stress. I know that was a lot of stuff. And again, it was another one of those that was kind of heavy and technical, but are there any questions as always the um, pdf of the powerpoint is in your class so you can go through and read it um, at your leisure but i find it fascinating how the body is so integral to our mood and vice versa everybody have an absolutely amazingly fabulous weekend Please try to do something that you are enjoying and looking forward to, and I will see you on Tuesday. If this podcast helps you help your clients or yourself, please support us by purchasing your CEUs at allceus.com or getting your agency to sponsor an episode. A direct link to the on-demand CEUs for this podcast is at allceus.com slash